welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. All right, so Tim, you had the conversation this week and you spoke with Jason Webby, who is the CRO of North America at Future. And I'm really curious, like Future has been making what seems to be a very targeted push into America. I'm curious, you know, what their view is of the U.S. and what their, um, you know, focus is of moving into this um, market. Yeah, so I think Jason makes the point that in the two years he's been at Future, they've made eight acquisitions. And then I've tallied, you know, they've had three acquisitions this year alone. And he he says, you know, they are trying to make a big push in the U.S. and in North America more broadly. And I mean, like every, you know, other publisher kind of in their tier, um, they're trying to be, you know, one of the dominant media companies in the U.S. Um, but, you know, they are backing it up in terms of the shopping spree that they've been on for the past couple of years. Right. And so um, obviously they're UK based originally, but, you know, with the addition of these US publishing properties, as well as um, focuses other markets that those audiences are in, I guess, like, did he say at all whether this is, you know, focused at assisting and, you know, first party data strategy, um, or even like looking at, you know, commerce or these, you know, adding into that, that strategy of just learning more about a larger audience? Yeah, it's kind of all of the above. I mean, he he talks about how like with the acquisition of Cinnable Blend, that's opened them up to new advertisers in entertainment categories. Um, and then we talk about how they acquired this data platform called Wave earlier this year. That'll you know be adding to the first party data platform that Future has already developed with. Um, it's called Aperture. And, and how having all these different verticals that they just keep acquiring in terms of publishing properties um, is just further adding to the size of their audiences, but then also the, the scope of the profiles they're able to build on their audiences. And then how they're also, um, Seb Joseph, our senior news editor, reported on this last year, and Jason and I talk about it, they're developing their own identifier, um, the future ID, um, to then you know not have to rely on third-party cookie replacement IDs, but to have their own technology in place. So they're, they're kind of doing everything that um, many publishers are trying to be doing right now. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to hear more about your conversation and get an update from future. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kayla. Jason Webby, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So... Future PLC is a really interesting media company to me. Like of all the publishers in the market, I feel like Future has been the most low-key aggressive, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but it feels yeah. apt. Like you all have been on a real shopping spree over the past couple of years, but the company's profile has been relatively low compared to like a Condé Nast or a BuzzFeed. But it feels like because of the shopping spree that may be changing, especially with the North America business that you oversee the revenue of. It is, yeah, and that's and that's on purpose. You know, our 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 company is maybe that low key aspect comes from the fact that we started out life as a British publisher of magazines years ago, and over the years have transitioned into a global digital media company. Um, and we did a lot of that through organic growth. But then also, as you said, the shopping spree we've been on is pretty prolific. And uh, and most of that is really geared towards B2B 
being being one of the dominant media players in the United States and North American market. So for us, you know, I've I've been here for just about two years, and, and I think we're on our eighth acquisition uh, since I got here. So it's it's been pretty fast and furious. In fact, we just we just acquired a new property this week, um, which we could talk about as well. But it's 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 certainly been really exciting. And you're right, it, it is by design that uh, that we're looking to grow our portfolio of brands and do that in a really meaningful way um, to be one of the top uh, publishers in the, in the market. Right. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I mean, I think if my count is correct, there have been three acquisitions that you all have made this year. Um, so you've acquired this week, the week that we're speaking, um, Women's Lifestyle Publisher, What Where. Um, and then in March, you picked up entertainment publisher, whatculture.com. And then you also picked up a data platform, Wave, in March. With these, the acquisitions that you've been making this year, do any of these represent any kind of new phase in the overall shopping spree? Yeah. I mean, when we look at acquisitions, we look at it in a, a few different ways. One is, do we already, is it a way, if we acquire a new brand, is it a way to give us more clout in a vertical that we already have strength in? Or is it a way for us to perhaps enter into a new vertical? Um, one where we perhaps didn't have much of a footprint before and gives us new capability in the marketplace. So with who, what, where that we've uh, acquired this week and then we're in the process of finalizing that acquisition over the next 30 days or so, that's an example of us adding a really high profile women's lifestyle brand to our women's lifestyle network that we've already got. So last year we acquired the U.S. rights for Mary Claire. And so we have that as both a print and digital property here in the US and in the UK. And that is surrounded by a number of other different women's lifestyle brands that uh, called one's called Women in Home, another called My Imperfect Life, and another called Good to Know. And when you add those together and then add who, what, where to it, we've got a really powerful women's network that when you put all those together in Comscore, we're now the number five publisher in terms of the fashion and beauty space in the U.S. So that's an example of us kind of layering two acquisitions over a period of a few months to create a really dominant position in one of the verticals that we feel strongly about. Uh, another good example of us kind of using acquisition to get a new footing in a marketplace was one that we made last year, which is called Cinema Blend. And prior to Cinema Blend, we really didn't have any content properties that talked about media, uh, streaming or movies or, you know, TV shows. Cinema Blend, uh, fast forward to today is now the number three ranked property in Comscore, uh, for media and streaming. And, you know, when we first acquired, uh, Cinema Blend, we weren't doing business with the likes of Hulu or Disney Plus or HBO Max or any of the, the big Hollywood studios or streamers. Today, we do business with almost all of them. So that was a really good example of us looking at the marketplace, finding a site that can really add to our portfolio of brands and giving us a new content property that we can go to market with and and, and bring in a whole new set of clients uh, and users uh, to our overall portfolio. Right, which is also a helpful set of advertisers given that entertainment streaming specifically was a strong advertising category during the pandemic. And now you have theatrical 
opening back up and that kind of helping to offset some of the softness with automotive advertisers at the moment who are dealing with the supply chain issues? Yeah, we've been um, we've been actually really fortunate in terms of the types of content that people were looking to consume, in particular during the pandemic, where you know we're the number one tech publisher as well. So brands like Tech Radar, uh, PC Gamer, Games Radar, Tom's Guide, um, all of those sites. So if you think about what people were doing during the pandemic, everyone had to work from home, so they had to buy a lot of gear. Everyone started playing video games. So all of that, all that content had a real mass appeal. A lot of our other content brands as well could because what we tend to do is our, our formula is all of our brands are really geared around helping people engage in the things that they're really passionate about. And, and we like to think of ourselves and our editorial teams as the experts who help guide them. So as a result, brands like Qatar World, you know, when everyone's sitting at home and we found that Hundreds of thousands of people decided it was a good time to start playing the guitar and brands like Gibson and Fender were selling out brands like uh, content sites like ours with Guitar World and Louder and other music brands like that saw a real surge uh, in traffic. And similarly, we saw similar things in gaming and tech and now streaming as well. So from a content perspective, we've been really fortunate that I think what Future brings to the table for our user base has been really timely but it is also kind of that that expert voice that they look to when, especially if people are locked in their house or if supply chain issues are there and it's tough to find what you want, we can help be your guide to help you find what's actually available that you can get now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. On the, the digital advertising you know, front, there's been softness in the first quarter that other media companies have seen and that when I talk with agency executives on the you know buy side, they're also you know seeing that and expecting that. How did things go in Q1 for you? Did ad revenue drop year over year? No, we've seen we had a pretty strong quarter, um, and I think it's probably because we you know we have so many different verticals across our our brand portfolio of brands, so we're not reliant on any one particular market sector. So if one has some softness in it, another one may pick it up. And I think the fact that we keep adding new content plays with new acquisitions gives us a whole new range of clients to talk to. So not everyone in the marketplace is going to be down at a given time. Certainly, we've seen some clients either may have supply chain issues or they couldn't get product out. And so maybe they've canceled campaigns or delayed it. That absolutely has happened in different pockets. But I think we've been fortunate that we've been able to weather that by having a really diverse portfolio of brands and users. Got it. And how do you manage, you know, sales and also revenue forecasting? Like even just looking now at we're in the second quarter, calendar second quarter, looking to Q three and Q four, because I mean, in the US, rising inflation, it, it dipped a little bit, but still pretty high. Interest rates have gone up, and then there are the supply chain issues. There's the Russia Ukraine war that has also affected the advertising business where when I talk to advertisers at agency holding companies heading into this year's like TV upfront market, there is, it's, it doesn't feel quite like 2020, but that there is that uncertainty again, that's kind of um, making marketers more measured with their spending. I, th I think that they probably are on the whole, and you're right, it's difficult to forecast really accurately. Um, I think one of the things that we we're, we're actually kind of fortunate because we really don't have many brands that are 
focused on delivering news. So we're really not covering, you know, Ukraine war coverage. So our, our clients don't have to worry about appearing next to, you know, a horrible article about people, bad things happening to people. Um, so we have that benefit across our portfolio. I think the other is that so much of what we do is, is geared around helping people make buying decisions that if clients are thinking about where to cut back or what type of advertising is going to work best for them, I think one of the benefits that Future brings to the table is because our, our content is around helping people navigate the things that they love, and in and, and often cases that means making a purchase, and we've we've built a really sophisticated e-commerce platform uh, as well across all of our sites that actually last year drove over a billion dollars in purchasing directly through e-commerce links on our site, that we find that we're able to, to help people find the things that they want, and then in many cases, click on a link and buy it. And that's continued both through the pandemic as well as through this period that we're seeing today. Um, so I think, you know, for us, absolutely, it's hard to judge what specific advertisers are going to do in terms of pulling back. We look at what they did last year as a gauge. We have to be close to our clients and, and listen to them and understand what kind of concerns that they have. Um, but we try to help them mitigate that. And I think when, when advertising is effective for somebody, particularly if they, if they're looking to drive purchasing or drive some sort of ROI, um, we tend to perform really, really well, uh, particularly against other competitors. So, um, you know, for us, I think it really comes down to delivering a, a high intent audience who's coming to us for a reason. And if we're giving them that editorial reason to keep coming back, then the advertising is going to have a, a profound effect as well. Got it. Was it more than a billion last year in commerce sales? I thought it was uh, 960 million. It was just about a billion. Yep. Just under. Okay. If I said okay. more, I apologize. It was Got just it. under. You're yeah, right. Yeah. No, I, I wasn't sure if like there was some, you know, last second. You know, no, 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 we didn't, we didn't tick up by another hundred million. No. <laughs> okay. Got it. Um, you mentioned, I mean, you all have a lot of non-news properties, but you do have the week. You picked that up through the Dennis Publishing acquisition. So how... Like, how are you managing that advertising business or to what extent advertising is a significant part of the week's business and revenue contribution? Yeah, it's a it's a large part of it, right? And and the week still has a really strong print component, and that's one of the the benefits of having been a, a largely print publisher years ago is that that expertise is still in the building, very much. So that that acquisition came to us as one that's a great combination of print and digital, and um, in terms of how that fits in, that that's one of the things that also is a real benefit, I think, when we bring a new brand into our portfolio is not only is the week coming into our portfolio and is being sold by my team as the week by itself, it's part of the future portfolio. So we've migrated theweek.com onto our owned and operated platform, which we call Vanilla, which which just about every single one of our websites, we have over 250 web properties, are all on the same platform. So that enables us to do a lot. It enables us to have, number one, a brand-safe environment where we're controlling all of the content, we're controlling all the technology. We know that all of the uh, users who are coming in are actually real people and not bots. So that's that's one good thing. It also enables us to understand, from a first-party data standpoint, we've launched a product called Aperture that 
enables us to not rely on third-party cookies, but to look at a user as an individual and understand where they come into the future portfolio, what content resonates with them, where do they go. If they go from theweek.com and then click over to Guitar World or to maryclaire.com, we can identify that person as a unique user. So when it comes to looking at how do we monetize a property like The Week, we can not only sell advertising uh, based on access to The Week's audience, but we can also look at how does The Week play within the larger portfolio of brands at Future. And perhaps if someone's looking for a certain audience segment that The Week has in, in strength, we can also look at how that segment might play out across the entire Future network. So in many cases, the brands that we bring into our portfolio are, are kind of magnified within this, this larger audience of family of brands where we can look at the aggregated audience of users and that becomes kind of more than the sum of its parts. It's like two plus two equals five, right? When you're, when you're bringing a new audience in. So that's, that's an effect that we've seen pretty quickly by bringing the week. We, when we acquired the week, we also acquired Kiplinger's personal finance. And that has created new opportunities in the wealth category for us as well as current events. So we've been able to look at advertisers that they had had traditionally had a lot of strength and long-term relationships with. And now we're bringing new future brands to the portfolio, uh, to the fore for them, that they're able to, to now communicate with users. So we're cross-selling quite a bit. And that's one of the benefits that we look to when we bring new brands into the portfolio. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. On the first-party data side, like if I go to any number of your sites, I don't have to log in in order to. There's no registration wall no. requiring me to like provide my email address. And so, how are you able to identify people, and then be able to? Is it first-party cookies that you're using, or some other method? So it's for, it's first party data in that there are some some identifiers might be you might have subscribed to one of our newsletter uh, newsletters that we've got across all of our sites. Um, it, we work with a number of partners and use ID graphs where we can identify users as they come to the portfolio. So we're not particularly looking for personally identifiable information to know that you are you. We just know that you're a user who's come to our site, and then when we see you as a user go somewhere else, we can understand what search terms you might have used to get there. What article did you come in on? Did you? How much time did you spend on that article? Did you click on an ad? Did you go to another article subsequent? And then did you click on an e-commerce link? And so it's a pretty robust user journey that we're able to understand. And we use that data um, both from an advertising standpoint, but also from an editorial standpoint, where our editors are constantly looking at, okay, what articles brought more people in? Which articles did people spend more time with? And which articles led to more e-commerce purchases? And when they analyze that data, they might say, okay, this one worked really, really well. Let's write more of these. And then it might be other ones that had a higher bounce rate. It's like, okay, what was it about this that didn't work so well for people? So it's a, it's, it's really gives us an ability to understand what our users are reacting to and what is, what is delivering them the most value to help them on their journey when they hit our portfolio brands. And so then how are you using that for advertisers? Because especially if you're, you know, for the people who are in your audience who aren't subscribed to a newsletter, um, 
then you're relying on those device graphs that can be more probabilistic data. Not to say it's not valuable data, but it's a bit uh, <laughs> squishier data. Um, and so at, for advertisers, they can have they can evaluate that data a bit differently in terms of its you know reliability because if it's probabilistic data if you know it's just oh well we know that these devices have been on the same ip address before there is a lot of guesswork then in determining well is this the adult in the household is it one of the kids in the household is it the person who is like looking at for you know new cars or something like that yeah, some of it, a lot of it comes from content and looking at what type of content people are consuming and being able to put them into different segments that show the intent that they have. So if someone has been on five different articles about uh, 5G mobile phones, we know that that user can go into a segment as a mobile phone intender, right? So a lot of it is based on what sort of content they're consuming as a user and what where they're going on their journey as they're on our platform. So that's a lot of the ways that we're using it to target is to, to put people into segments that make the most sense based on the behavior that they've been exhibiting and what type of content they seem to be coming to our portfolio for. Got it. Okay. Um, my colleague, our senior news editor, Seb Joseph, reported, I believe it was last fall, that Future is developing its own ID, the future ID. Where do things stand with that development? Yeah, that's that's in process uh, for us. And you've seen a couple of our, you talked about a couple of our acquisitions that have to be data acquisitions. So the more that we can understand about users and obviously from a privacy compliant way, um, the better that we can develop more robust user profiles to understand what, who they are as a consumer, meaning like I don't need to know their name and things like that, but it's more about what is this individual really interested in? And then when we see them on our portfolio, can we identify them as that individual user and then be able to target them for advertising? Um, so that's the whole point behind it. Got it. And so is that just going, the future ID just going to be a linchpin for what you're already doing? I want to make sure I'm you know, clear it, and anyone it, in the audience is clear on yeah. like what that does for you differently it, it, than what it you does. Have. No, it does exactly that. And that, that is, that is what we're, we're looking to, to, to make that ID as, uh, as rooted in data as much as possible. Uh, it has many different sources that can kind of let us, let us know that that individual is the individual that we think they are as they move around our, our, our portfolio. Got it. What's the timeline for when that's going to be ready? Um, I would need to, I don't want to give you a, a, a date that I don't have uh, locked in my head, but I, we can certainly check with our, uh, with our head of uh, dev and come back to you on that. Got but it. it's okay. all in process. Yeah. yeah. One one of the reasons I ask is because um, I imagine that's something that can be helpful for in anticipation of the third party cookie going away in late 2023. And I know when I'm talking with both publishers and advertisers, it seems like the big concern right now with respect to the third party cookie going away isn't so much like the targeting side of things. I think a lot of that has to do with like companies like Future and other publishers have done a lot of work on the first party data side to be able to, and there's also contextual targeting that's part of it. So the targeting impacts, I don't think are as much of a threat anymore have been mitigated. But now the big concern on both buy side and sell side seems to be measurement and attribution. And that there is some urgency there because if third party cookie goes away, 
then metrobin attribution models break effectively overnight and you have no like historical baselines, especially for advertisers to be able to plan against. And so what I'm kind of getting to is it feels like there needs to be a period ahead of time, maybe even a year ahead of time for something like a future ID to be in market or whatever the kind of identity linchpins are going to be so that there can be enough data measurement and attribution accrued in order to set the new models to have that baseline for that post-cookie landscape. How are you thinking about this? Well, yeah, so we feel really good about our ability to not have to rely on cookies at all. And we have that ability today, right? So, and I think one of the benefits of having such a a vast user base that's all on our same owned and operated platform is we're already reaching one out of every three U.S. online adults, right? So because we have that level of scale, as we're looking at identifying individual users and are currently able to identify individual users on our portfolio, we feel really confident that we have that level of attribution already in place. I think what the industry lacks without cookies is if my user goes to another company's websites, it can be, it's next to impossible for an advertiser to track how that user left future and went somewhere else, right? So I think what you described is that's missing, right? And I don't know that there's a quick answer to that unless all of us publishers get together and figure out a way that my, my user ID can be, you know, connected to another user ID elsewhere. But within our own ecosystem at future, we feel really confident that we're able to uh, identify who those users are within our platform and really understand when advertisers have connected with them, um, you know, which ads, which ads drove them to do what sort of behavior. Got it. In that scenario of user is on one site, they click on an ad to go to the advertiser site to publish the product. It, it feels like that would also apply to commerce being driven from a publisher, like, you know, one of future sites to a retailer or someone else and that, you know, therefore that kind of attribution would be affected. I, I guess like you can still be passing domains and, you know, kind of the parameters um, when a person clicks to be able to have kind of a less click attribution. But yeah. is there any like work that needs to be done on the you know commerce side of attribution? I think that really depends on what the retailer is comfortable with, right? So from our e-commerce, you know, as I said, we drove almost a billion dollars in, in e-commerce revenue last year. We've got dozens of partners that we work with, and um, each one of them have information about how a user goes from our e-commerce link through their system. Now, they don't necessarily have to share any of that purchase information with us and many don't and so we know if someone clicks on a link but we don't actually know if they 100% purchase the product unless the retailer tells us that Um, in some cases they might want to share that data with us and in other cases they may not it's proprietary to them so I think that really depends on um, the 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 relationship between the e-commerce publisher and the the retailer themselves you mentioned like you're not always able to get the data from the retailers or the merchants um, to be able to attribute back to you know sales that could be attributed to future sites. Are there ways in which you can be negotiating with the retailers, the merchants for that data? Because I would imagine a risk could be that at some point they would just cut you off entirely or use that 
against you, especially because, I mean, a lot of retailers are standing up these retail media networks. And so they're becoming more and more directly competitive with publishers for advertisers' budgets. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. And I think each one of those, um, the terms of those agreements are going to be different based on every partner, right? And some retailers are going to feel more strongly about some things and others maybe not. Um, and then we're also going to have, we have differing and, and complex relationships with these vendors as well, where some of them that we we work with in massive volume and there are names that you know very well. And there's others that are that are kind of smaller, right? So it really depends on, I think, the level of business that we're conducting together. And you know, we we really try to look at those relationships as true partnerships where we'd like to think that we're really helping their business and they're really helping our business. And both of us are helping our user base. Um, you know, whether it's educating them on the products they want and then providing for them a real-time uh, product comparison engine where they can go right in and buy it um, is is a pretty powerful thing for the user. So we're I think the, the retailers are pretty vested uh, for the most part in working well with us to try to, A, understand what's going to drive more purchasing. So if that means sharing more data, then those are discussions that happen, right? But again, it's it's going to be specific to each one of the different the different retailers that we work with got it futures been in the commerce space for a while like you all have one of the more mature like media commerce businesses yeah we built it ourselves um from the ground up about seven years ago it's called hawk um and uh we were we were looking at different options that were available in the market and we we, we determined that there really weren't any out there that could that could do what we wanted in real time, um, and, and could handle the kind of the volume that we envisioned was going to start coming through. Um, and so we, we built it ourselves and now it's an incredibly robust pro, uh, platform that sits um, on vanilla, so it's right out. It's right alongside our CMS platform. So again, it's all our tech. It works seamlessly together. It's a real-time pricing comparison engine that can review millions of products in nanoseconds and look at not only you know what the prices currently are, but we can also look at inventory avails. So one of the things that we found quite a lot, especially during the pandemic, was you know as an example, look at uh, Xbox Series X and PS5. You know everybody wanted both and nobody could get either. And one of the things that we were really good at was understanding when a retailer got a new batch in stock, we would be able to immediately change the SKUs on our website, let people know that they could get it right away. We also use social media for that, where our editors would tweet out, hey, such and such retailer at 5 p.m. is going to be putting you know, a, a number of these on sale. Go there now. Um, we really were able to be super time sensitive to be able to help people navigate to not only what they want, but what they could actually get at that time. Got it. And, and that's um, all tech. It's all tech driven, right? If we right. didn't have the technology in place, we wouldn't be able to do it. Got it. Our media editor, Kaylee Barber, my podcast co-host, um, recently reported in our weekly media briefing how some publishers are running into some friction between their commerce businesses and their advertising businesses that some you know advertisers are now you know leaning more towards working with the the publishers on the commerce side because it can be more cost effective it can be you know cheaper than working with them on advertising and then also like they get to drive sales directly from that work so it becomes more cost efficient um, and is you know actually affecting ad sales and revenues how have you been managing this issue 
issue and to what extent have you, you all been affected by this? They're not. Uh, so advertising and e-commerce for us are not mutually exclusive. It's not that a client's going to do one or the other. In a lot of cases, I mean, there's, there's dozens of clients who work with us in both capacities. But Very do you rarely, do anything to reinforce that? Because I, I, I can imagine there could be advertisers who say, well, it's our money and like we'd rather spend less just to do the commerce stuff because that works just fine for us and then we can save save a buck. Well, I think what they might find is that their commerce part's not going to work as well if people don't know about them. And so that there's there's a lot to be said for the power of advertising and how it, you know, branding still works, right? That's why people still buy linear TV. Uh, you know, so I, I think if clients were to rely only on e-commerce, they would probably see their sales on e-commerce drop. Um, particularly as, you know, one of the beauties of, of our particular platform is that if you're advertising on our platform, and you have an e-commerce relationship, then you have multiple touch points with clients to be able to help educate them. Um, and so uh, for the most part, we really don't see much problem between one cannibalizing the other. It tends to be more so, are there opportunities for us to have a joined up conversation with a client? Um, and it, that also depends on how a client structures internally. Like sometimes their e-commerce side of their own business has nothing to do with the advertising side of the business. So the conversations aren't even joined up. So if they are and they want to work with us that way, we do that all the time. So I had two conversations this week with our e-commerce team and a client where we talked together about how we could work together for them. So um, for us, again, it's, it's more of a symbiotic relationship as opposed to one that's opposing each other. Got it. How are you all organized internally between your commerce team and your sales team? And, and, you know, do you do anything specifically to help to incentivize collaboration and cooperation between the two teams? So we are separate teams. So in my role, I'm the chief revenue officer for North America. I oversee all of the advertising uh, side of the business here. Um, we have a separate e-commerce team. Um, they don't share targets. They don't go to market necessarily together unless we want to go together. So what we tend to do is we make sure that both teams know who their counterparts are on both sides of the business, that if we have clients in common, we should be talking about what's working well or what challenges they might have. And if there are ways to collaborate, we look to try to do that. Um, we, 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 in terms of incentivizing Future really works really well across multiple departments and teams. Um, there's, there's usually if we work, if advertising is going to work with the e-commerce side, both sides are probably going to benefit from it. And so we, we don't see a real need to, to throw out lots of extra incentives. It's just kind of at future, we work together. That's what we do. Got it. And there have been, you know, some, um, changes with like the CRO role where, I think it was in March where, you know, Vox Media CRO Ryan Polly gained oversight of subscriptions. And I think there have been other, you know, examples where a CRO at a publisher, you know, was just focused on advertising and added, you know, commerce and kind of all the different revenue streams. Um, I imagine this is a delicate, you know, conversation because you don't want sure. to like create friction with your colleagues or whoever yeah. you would be taking. But do you see the role of the CRO changing right now? At future, I don't know that it would uh, necessarily. And I think that probably stems for the size of the businesses we're talking about, right? So 
our e-commerce business we talked about is just under a billion dollars. My advertising side of the business, I oversee over 250 brands. Like there's a lot um, that goes into both of those sides of the business. And for any one person to oversee, it's a pretty big job. Um, and that doesn't, that's not to say that it wouldn't work or that you couldn't do that. But, but currently the way we're structured, um, those, those are filled full time gigs, uh, basically. And, uh, I think what works for us really well right now is, is the structure that we have. And, and, you know, I think we, we all work really well together. So, you know, I know my counterparts on that side and, you know, they, they know me and we, we collaborate quite a bit and that works. Got it. Okay. Well, Jason, on that note, you are <laughs> a busy person. So we appreciate you carving out some time to talk to us on the podcast. Absolutely. Great to meet you, Tim. Thanks for having me. And this was, uh, this was fun. I'd love to come back again. Absolutely. Thanks again. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.